Today we have the opportunity to interview Tomasz Walaszek, who is the current director of Carnegie Europe and was formerly the ambassador to NATO from Slovakia. Thank you for joining us on the program today, Mr. Walaszek. Pleasure to be with you. Glad to have you. So we thought since you were an expert in transatlantic relations, we'd start on the current state of affairs between the US and um, Central European countries, especially in the context of rise of illiberal democracies, some squelching of the free uh, a free press, um, breaches in in rule of law, and strong leaders on both sides of the Atlantic. What do you think the current relation is? Right, uh, difficult. I mean, the stereotype mostly in Europe is that surely the Central Europeans have a good relationship with the United States because. They kind of think like Trump. They're both populist and illiberal. But of course, that's a stereotype. The reality is Central Europeans come in all different stripes. Uh, the Balts uh, are about as far away from the illiberal model as one can possibly get. Uh, the Hungarians and the Poles might have more in common with the, um, the Trump-style politics than other Central Europeans. Uh, but of course, they don't represent all of Central Europe. I mean, if anything, the... For the non-Trumpites among the Central Europeans, that means most countries other than Hungary and Poland, the rise of Donald Trump poses kind of a problem uh, in two ways. One, it's not clear that he's too crazy about alliances, right? He keeps saying things like, you know, the allies are taking us for a ride, they're laughing, laughing all the way to the bank. Um, so for countries, uh, that, which is the case of Central Europe, very much depend on uh, the United States for their own security. That's kind of unnerving. So there isn't, you know, there there were there were no great um, tears of joy when when Trump was elected. I mean, the second way that Trump actually complicates life for many Europeans is that because they are seen by some in Western Europe as sort of Donald Trump's allies in or on the continent. Uh, that adds to the east-west tensions within the EU. So you see a lot of friction between, the you know, the French on the one hand, and uh, and the Slo and the Poles, Czechs, Slovaks, Hungarians, the Visegrad countries on the other, because again the stereotype in France and elsewhere holds that these guys are sort of Donald Trump's stooges in Europe. They are the illiberal allies. Uh, they are doing his bidding and helping to break up the EU. That's not true. That's not how it works. Uh, but that stereotype is there, and that's not helpful for Central Europe either. So in that context, what about the proposal from the Polish government to um, fund a military, permanent military base in Poland um, called Fort Trump? What do you think? I think it's a concern on the part of the Central Europeans that I spoke about, the idea that they cannot be sure that Donald Trump is serious about alliances. So what the Poles are trying to do, seems to me, is to essentially... Um, um, for lack of a better term, smoke out the United States. Basically say, hey, if you're concerned about defense spending, which you say you are, uh, here is not just 2% of GDP that we are already spending on defense, but we are going to put another couple of billion on top just to pay for the U.S. presence here. And again, if you're serious about uh, your commitment to Europe and you, if your only concern is money, well, let's take money off the table because we pay all of the expenses. So do the right thing. And it's, it's that kind of a challenge. Yeah. And in the con in the conversation of defense, as you know, Macron has um, proposed a European army. 
and has been backed by uh, Chancellor Angela Merkel from Germany. What is your uh, analysis of the situation for transatlantic relations? I'm not sure it was a proposal. I mean, it's not really worth the name term proposal. He he called for a European army, but but there's no specificity on what that really means, no timelines and, and, and seemingly no obvious visible plan to put anything like that in place. And I don't, you know, I'm not nitpicking, I'm not just trying to be the cute think tank. The point I'm making is, I I think what's happening is, you know, getting close to European elections. So different leaders are trying to mobilize different part of their constituency through different means. And I think it's important to see the call for European army in that context. It's and it's an attempt by the president to appeal to those who believe in it, not just in France, but in France, who believe in the closest possible integration of European states, including a common army. Um, I think it's an election sort of pre-election sloganeering rather than a workable plan. Again, no follow-up has taken place. Uh, we don't see any timelines, no, no papers, no reach out to allies, no diplomatic efforts underway. Um, because it's so nebulous, in some ways so so vague, um, you know, of course, no European leader is going to go against it. Uh, and so Angela Merkel did the sensible thing in saying, sure, in principle, yes. But of course, if we actually try to build, meaning if we got into serious debate and EU allies on which part of our national sovereignty do we surrender? Who is going to trust what ally with one's uh, security and defense? I think you would very quickly find that the consensus on European army would fall apart on those two. And speaking of consensus in the EU, um, what do you think of the matter of the EU, um, their decision to vote on sanctions for Hungary, and how does that affect? Um, um, yeah, I understand and I actually sympathize with the political instinct to draw a red line, right? I mean, there are certain things that thou shall not do um, in the EU, and it makes sense to to make a clear red line or line in the sand, just to muddle my metaphors uh, and say, you know, this is this this behavior has crossed the line. So I, I understand the instinct. I'm just not sure that the European Parliament vote was the right way to go. Um, in case of Poland, the European Commission uh, was the person or the entity that has um, um, gone um, after Poland, so to speak. Uh, and it's actually, I think, a, a better suited vehicle because the Commission is, is apolitical, uh, unlike the Parliament, especially with six months to go before elections, where a number of the members of the Parliament are using the issue for political purposes. The Commission is kind of technocratic. Uh, it is the defender, and by treaty, it is the, the embodiment of the of the European spirit. Uh, it's, it's more of a neutral broker. Um, and what you have seen in case of the uh, Article 7 proceedings against Poland that were initiated by the Commission is, you know, you have seen the European Court of Justice acting, and you've seen Poland actually responding. Just today, as we speak, as we're recording this uh, this interview, Poland started reinstating the judges that it initially essentially removed from the court uh, under from ECJ. So there was a clear that was that was the kind of sequence you want, right? The Commission uh, speaks. Uh, the uh, it refers to matter to Court of Justice. The Court of Justice Justice issues a verdict, and Poland acts. None of that really happens with the with the European Parliament because. When you um, um, invoke Article 7 in the European Parliament, the matter goes to the EU governments for decision. And of course, they are not going to agree. Poland is going to support Hungary. Italy is going to support Hungary and Poland. So I, I just I find the European Commission approach more useful than, uh, than the European Parliament approach. And do you think Article 7 is the appropriate approach for 
in general when there are issues of breach of law? Is this the way that it should go, whether through the commission, which you said is better, or through the parliament? Is there a better way to curb um, issues within the EU member states? I think Article 7 to be probably necessary, but certainly not sufficient, right? Okay. So it, it was important in the sense of drawing a line in the sand and, and signaling to uh, Viktor Orban, uh, Mr. Kaczynski, and whoever else may be concerned that, you know, there are certain things that the EU is not going to stand for. So, so far, so good. The problem is, by itself, punitive measures almost never change behavior. I mean, they may change it around the margins. Again, you have seen the Polish government reinstating the judges. But, but what you really want to do is change the mindset. What you really want to do is change the attitude. And that, that doesn't happen through punitive measures alone. What you need to do is, and what, has, what the EU hasn't done sufficiently, um, in my mind anyway, is figuring out who are the allies in Poland, in Hungary, in Slovakia, in Czech Republic, uh, that are going to put pressure on their own governments to live by more of a European spirit. Um, and how do we do that? How do we mobilize those allies? Um, what the EU hasn't done either is figuring out how do you not alienate those allies? And I think some of the some of the statements that mix together rule of law issues, so the non-negotiable parts of the acquis with cultural issues, with values are not useful. I think that they discouraged the conservatives in Central Europe with aligning from aligning themselves with the EU. They send them in a direction of the anti-EU crowd. So there's a lot that the EU should and should not be doing in addition to Article 7 that I think that, um, uh, that the EU institutions and, and governments have not explored. Very interesting. Thank you. The last question we have for you today is actually um, something we were able to speak with a fellow citizen of yours, Dr. Josip Latora, who is a pres uh, professor at our university, on the situation in Slovakia earlier this year. And when the episode had finished, the state had still been um, at a bit of an impasse. We wanted to know if you've seen or if you could speak on any progress that may, that may have or may not have happened um, in the country. So what's happening in Slovakia is, is pretty depressing in a short run and probably good in a long run, I hope. What I mean by that is that we're seeing um, a mobilization of the populist forces which have already been in a government in case of Slovakia for a number of years. So both a large elements of the ruling, the dominant Smer party, are, are turning out to be quite you know, brazenly going down the populist. Um, there are other countries, there are other elements of the political scene, the small Slovak National Party, SNS, which has from the get-go been quite openly populist. Um, and what they're doing is is basically dropping any pretense that they're trying to live by any sort of European spirit and are, and are um, in a context of both the European elections that are coming up and also it's important to keep in mind that Slovak parliamentary elections, so the main elections, are also coming up in about a year and a half. So given that the um, that their own seats will be up for grabs, they're becoming more and more sort of brazenly political with issues such as migration uh, and more and more populist. That's bad in a short run in a sense that apparently the Slovak government has just, or Slovak parliament has just ruled that the foreign minister uh, may not, must not sign the global pact on migration which I think is just silly and it's, it's, it's just one of these empty populist gestures. But I think in the long run, what you're seeing is sort of a dying moments of the current coalition. The thing, to, the thing to keep in mind with regard to Slovakia is that we had elected populist government in some ways long before Poland and long before many of the uh, other governments, certainly long before Italy, uh, long before current Aust Austria's 
towards populism. And they've kind of run their course. They've been in charge in Slovakia for a while. Uh, like most other governments, they have a natural lifespan. People eventually get tired of seeing the same faces. So what I'm hope, what I hope is happening is that while the populist forces that are in the government already are mobilizing and becoming more and more so, more and more so brazenly um, un-European, uh, that this is also some you know, bit of a last hooray. It's pretty optimistic. Um, and hopefully, if your analysis is correct, this is the trend that will continue throughout Europe in populist regimes. Let's hope so. Yeah. Okay, well, that was all that we have time for today. But thank you so much for joining us on the program. We really enjoyed having you. And, and thanks to, the, uh, to those that are watching.